0: Well, hello, Crown Point. Good Good to see you guys uh, this morning. Good to be here. Um, If you guys don't know who I am, my name is Tony Sorcy. I am uh, usually over in Cedar Lake at that campus. I'm the campus pastor uh, out there, but always a privilege, always a joy uh, to come and spend the weekend uh, with you guys here at uh, Crown Point. I have the privilege of delivering the very first message in uh, 2014. You're going to want to come back next week, um, A, because the weather is going to be a lot better, I think. And uh, B, uh, Pastor Steve's going to be kicking us off in a new sermon series um, on the Ten Commandments. So really, really looking forward um, to that. But I'm excited to kick us off here for what I'm trusting to be a very, very exciting year in the life of our church. Very excited to, uh, and looking forward to seeing movement um, in all three of our Mission Them initiatives. And um, as a Cedar Lake guy, especially uh, in particular, excited about uh, the addition out there in, uh, in Cedar Lake and uh, what's happening. In Southwest Lake County. And I just wanted to briefly say uh, from the campus pastor at Cedar Lake and, and on behalf of our campus, thank you to everyone who gave generously and sacrificially to Mission Them and made that work possible um, out there in Southwest Lake County. And um, I'm particularly moved because that's a work that some of you are never going to be a part of um, physically, like there, like going to the campus and attending and being a part of the work there, and you still gave to it. And so on behalf of myself and the staff and everybody else, thank you so, so much for that. I'm very appreciative of your generosity. So very excited to see what God does in and through Bethel in 2014. Well, our main text today is Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. So go ahead and get there in your Bibles. We're going to be all in Matthew 11 and a little bit of 12. We're going to be really heavy, heavily emph- emphasizing the text today. Um, so you're going to want to get there on your iPhone, Galaxy, tablet. If you actually have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and get there. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Please follow along with me as I read. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor, And are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God, help me by the power of your Spirit to bring out of this text all that you intend to do today for the people that are here. In Jesus' name. Amen. And so we give our attention this weekend to this very, very popular verse. Chances are you've heard this passage. Chances are you've heard some messages, some some sermons on this passage. Maybe you've come across it in a book or in a devotional um, that you've done early in the morning. Maybe you've given yourself to a reading plan. Maybe you've given yourself to a devotional this new year. Maybe you've even come across it since then. And maybe you've heard this passage come up in a small group discussion. Uh, Maybe someone brought this up while you're in your small group or your core group. Maybe you've heard this passage shared with you by a friend as you've been sharing all of life's ups and downs and just talking about life. Maybe a friend has shared this passage with you as an encouragement. Maybe you've shared this with a friend as you've been talking with them about what's going on in their life. You might even have this passage underlined in your Bible. Some of you have your Bibles here. And this verse, 1128 to 30, is underlined. Better yet, maybe you're here and you've been trusting, believing, experiencing Jesus like this for some time now. You know Jesus like this. You've been trusting him and knowing him according to the truths in this verse here. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30 is an invitation that Jesus gives, a gracious invitation, which is the title of my message. But it's an invitation given in a certain context to a certain people. And what I want to do is I wanna explore this familiar portion of scripture, but I wanna do so in context. So as best we can, although this is a very popular verse, as best we can, let's try and take a fresh look ...at this passage and these powerful words from Jesus. And my goal is to gather the meaning out of this text... ...and to gather the meaning of what Jesus is saying here... ...by examining three different groups... ...or three different types of people that surround Jesus' invitation. So there's three different types of groups... three different groups of people and types of people... ...that surround Jesus' invitation here. And they give us the context... And so the first is this, John the Baptist and the doubting. John the Baptist and the doubting. Matthew 11 begins with a locked up, frustrated John the Baptist with a burning question on his heart and on his mind. John's been preaching about the coming Messiah. He's been calling people to repent and be baptized, which in his day landed him in jail and eventually cost him his head. Like, literally, his head got cut off. Okay, so like three chapters later, Matthew 14, you can read all about that. But before his death, while still in prison, John the Baptist sends messengers. He sends a group of his disciples to Jesus, and he asks this burning question of his. And it's this. These ask on behalf of Jesus, verse 3. Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one... Are you the Messiah? Are you the coming redeemer? Are you the one to fulfill all Old Testament anticipation and expectation? Are you the coming rescuer from the line of David? And Jesus responds to these disciples, gives them this word to send back to John, verses 4 to 6. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. God's kingdom has come in Jesus. There's healing. There's restoration. There's peace. There's shalom. Shalom experience in the the healing of the bodies. Shalom experience in restoration back to God. Good news is preached to the poor. And Jesus sends these disciples back to John with this answer and so maybe at the surface you're like okay like is jesus the one who is to come like that's not a weird question like people have asked that question in the past but this is a particularly strange question for john to ask why it's strange for john to ask but because all the way up until this point john has been telling everyone that jesus is the one he's been telling them that he is the one behold the lamb of god which takes away the sins of the world John said those words. And here we have John in jail asking the question, Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? John was the one whose role was to announce and prepare the coming of the Messiah. And so John would say things like this, Matthew 11: uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 11 to 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. This is John's role. He's been preparing the way for Christ. He's been telling people that Jesus is the Christ, he is the one. And now he's questioning, doubting. Really. And one of the reasons why John was questioning and doubting if Jesus was the one was the fact that Jesus wasn't bringing judgment. He wasn't bringing this fire that John talked about there in Matthew 3. For John, it seemed like the Holy Spirit was with Jesus to do many miracles and many good things, but he was wrestling with with, with what seemed to be an inconsistency with what he knew about the coming Messiah. John's asking, where's the fiery judgment? When will he clear the threshing floor? If Jesus is the one, when are you going to gather the chaff and and burn it up with fire? Where's your judgment? Where's your rule? Where's your righteous, just rule? John's frustration really captures an entire people's frustration. God's people at this time were frustrated with Rome's authority. Being under Rome's power, the man, the Roman government. Corrupt governmental leaders. They were frustrated with oppressive religious authorities and corrupt temple leaders. John wants justice. He wants judgment. He wants political and religious oppression to end. John wants salvation. He wants the one to come and lay the smack down for everybody in here who's under 16. Okay? He wants Jesus to come and open a can. All right? That's what John wants. He wants that. And Jesus is not fulfilling. His expectations of the Messiah. And it's frustrating him even further now that he's in prison and John is doubting. So let's talk about doubting. Let's talk about those who doubt. John represents to us a good way to doubt. Not all doubt is bad. Doubting can be an ally to the truth if it's the truth that we actually seek. John doubts well in that he has his doubts. He's questioning, but he's seeking an answer to his questions. And furthermore, he's going to the right places for his answers. John comes to Jesus, who is the truth. You know, as I've talked with God, or as I've talked with people about God, I talk with God. But as I talk with people about God and about God's gospel, I found that there are two very different ways in which people ask questions. Some ask questions in search of the truth. They genuinely ask the question wanting to hear the truth. But others ask questions in order to keep a comfortable distance between themselves and the truth. They ask questions not wanting an answer. They ask questions trying to just separate themselves from a responsibility to the truth. Because the truth demands a response. And the truth demands our responsibility. In other words, some ask questions with hearts that truly desire to move from doubting and questioning to knowing and believing. Others ask questions with hearts that have no interest in hearing an answer. Their hearts are hard. Their questions are not a temporal place of learning. They are a permanent place of doubting. And it's also that they can create distance between themselves and the truth about God. And in Romans 1.18, Paul talks about this phenomenon of, of doubting in a bad way. Paul tells us that it's not so much for unbelieving folks, people that don't believe in God, who don't submit to Christ, or in Jesus's words, take, the, take Jesus's yoke upon them and submit to Christ. Paul tells us that it's not so much that they lack knowledge, or they lack information, or that they lack the truth. Rather, what they do, Paul tells us, is that they suppress the truth. They push it down. They shove it down and they keep it down, like how your old, meaner brother did to you in the pool growing up as kids with your head. He would dunk you and keep your head down. That's what these folks do with the truth. They suppress it. And so we see John has doubts, but he's not like those in Romans 1. He takes his doubts to Jesus. He engages Jesus with his doubts. Are you the one to come or shall we look for another? His heart is one that's seeking the truth, the true Messiah in this case. He senses some inconsistencies. He doesn't shove it down. He doesn't hide it. He's honest about it. He asks the question, and he's truly desiring an answer. And you could say, in a sense, that John takes Jesus up on his gracious invitation in verses 28 to 30 to come to me. Come to me with your questions. Come to me with your doubts. Come to me with your intellectual wrestlings. Come with your perceived inconsistencies, Jesus says to all, "Come to me and learn from me." And how does Jesus respond to John when he comes with his doubts, when he comes with his concerns? We see that Jesus is gracious to John with his question. Jesus welcomes john 's questions, he gives him the answers that he seeks, and he sends john 's disciples away with an answer based upon a messianic clue in isaiah six sixty one one to two. John comes with his doubting. He comes with his questions and receives a gracious and tender answer from Jesus and then is commended in verses seven to 15. Seven to 15 of Matthew 11 is all Jesus talking very, very well and commending John to the people around. Jesus doesn't blast John with a, oh, ye of little faith. He doesn't say, don't ask that. Don't worry about that, right? I think so many times Christians, Christian leaders, right? Christian teachers are almost kind of paranoid about questions. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you asking that? Don't ask that. Jesus doesn't do that with John. He welcomes him. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't scold John for doubting. And he doesn't dodge the question. He's understanding. He's tender. He satisfies his questioning. And Jesus shows us in this interaction of what, with John of what he says of himself in 11.29, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. We see this kind of gentleness and this lowliness of heart in Jesus come out with John's questions. So John shows us that you can come sincerely to Jesus with anything, even doubts, questions. It's not bad and it's not wrong sometimes to doubt in this way like John does. Some demonized doubting, some demonized questioning of any kind. But Jesus graciously welcomes genuine doubters, genuine seekers, as he does with John here in Matthew 11. So maybe that's you today. Maybe you have been coming here. Maybe you're kicking the tires of Christianity. You're peeking over the fence. What's this all about? And you have some genuine doubts. You have some genuine questions. You have some genuine concerns. And what Jesus would have to say to you today is come. Come to me and learn from me. And I would encourage you to take him up on this offer. And it's good to ask questions if your heart seeks the answer. There is such a thing as truth. Truth can be discovered. And Jesus says, come and learn because Jesus is the truth. So that's the first lens. That's the first type of person that we see this gracious invitation. And while John gives us positive examples of coming to Jesus, even with questions and doubts, John has so Jesus rather has some sobering words for another group who had a different kind of doubt, and who didn't come to Jesus in verses 20 to 24. This next group is the prideful, the indifferent and the unbelieving. And we see this gracious invitation in light of these folks here. So verse one of uh, Matthew 11 is the blanket context for Matthew chapter 11. And it says this: when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Their cities, there in verse 1, refers to the hometown of the disciples, right? They're preaching, they're going about and they're preaching and they're ministering in their hometowns here. And so just briefly up until this point here in Matthew 11, the Sermon on the Mount wraps up in Matthew chapter 7. And from there, Jesus begins a stretch of ministry that centered mostly in the region of Galilee. And even more specifically, the three towns that are mentioned in verse 21, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Bethsaida was hometown to Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And Capernaum was Jesus' adopted hometown. Although he was born in Nazareth, grew up there as a carpenter, Capernaum seems to be Jesus' adopted hometown and spent much time there. And so all of these towns are located on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. They're very, very close to one another, within two to four miles of each other. And as verse 20 says, These were the cities that witnessed most of the miracles performed by Jesus so we don't have everything in the gospels that jesus said and taught but the most important things we do but here's just a snapshot in matthew recorded up until this point of matthew 11 of the things that jesus has done in in matthew 8 jesus heals the servant of a roman centurion matthew 8 again jesus heals peter's he heals peter's mother-in-law who gets up in good health and wants to cook him some food which is what you do when you're a mother-in-law after someone heals you you want to cook them food and feed them it's it's good to do that right Matthew 8, Jesus casts out demons and heals other sick people. Matthew 9, Jesus heals a paralytic. Matthew 9 again, Jesus raises a dead girl to life. Matthew 9, Jesus restores sight to two blind men. Matthew 9 again, Jesus casts out a demon of a mute person, and he begins immediately to speak. Now, these are the things that Jesus points to when John's disciples come questioning Go back to John and tell him, listen, lepers are being cleansed, the deaf are hearing, the dead are being raised, good news is being preached. And so these cities had a front row seat to these miracles. They saw these things. This is where Jesus spent most of his time. And you'd think, you'd think after being witness to the greatest life and ministry this world has ever seen, that these cities and the people there would have been so convinced of Jesus' power and authority that they would have humbled themselves and repented their sin. You'd think that they would be so moved by miraculous nature of these miracles that they would believe in Jesus and worship him. And yet Jesus, in his final analysis of his ministry here in these cities, speaks a staggering criticism over them for their pride, their indifference, their lack of repentance, and their lack of unbelief. Look at verse 20. Let's start there. Look at what he says. Then he began to denounce these cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. They did not turn to him. They did not take him up on his offer to come. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I don't want the shock and the powerful nature of these words to miss us here this morning. He says to these cities, woe to you. That's a strong, powerful language of judgment and condemnation. Woe to you. Jesus says, if these works that I've just done in your presence would have been done in the ancient, godless, pagan cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, they would have put on their funeral clothes, got repentant, and would have turned to me long ago. But you don't, and you haven't. And these cities, for the most part, have rejected Jesus' gracious offer to come to Jesus. They have not come to him. They've not come to him in repentance. They've not come to him in faith. And Jesus drops a massive word of judgment and woe on these cities. And here's the shocker. Here's what's shocking. Here's what really stuck out to me as I was studying this. Jesus actually says that when the judgment day comes, and it's coming, and Jesus speaks of it here. When judgment comes, you would be better off. To have been ignorant to the truth and from the city of Sodom than to have seen and known like these cities and still reject. You would have been better off to have lived in Sodom and Gomorrah in those days than to be like these cities and still reject. That's a shocking statement. And that's a bold statement. And it's shocking, I think, in part because Jesus said that anyone's going to be better off than Sodom on Judgment Day, right? Sodom's like the poster child, right, for like sin and godlessness and sexual immorality. In fact, we have specific sexual sinful acts that are named after Sodom. And Jesus says that you would be better off to have been from Sodom than to have seen and known what you have seen and known and still reject. And why is it the case that these cities are worse off? Why is it the case that their sin is worse than Sodom's? Friends, because I think the worst sin of all is unbelief. The worst sin of all is unbelief. Especially blatant unbelief in the face of the blatant truth. Which is exactly what we see here from these cities. These cities had a front row seat to the life teaching and miracles of Jesus and that they still didn't trust in him. And this is hard for us to grasp, I think. It's hard for us to grasp because we're so used to ranking specific sins and we have our different kind of like our, our, our chart of worst to least when it comes to sin and, and sinners. And so sins like sexual immorality and homosexuality in particular, murder, these kinds of things, they're way up at the top of the list. Gluttony's like down here. We don't really talk about that. We just kind of overconsume and pig out, especially in churches, not really worried about that. Sexual sin, murder, homosexuality, way up at the top of the list. And we always love to rank sinners, right? So like Hitler and Dahmer and Sodom and Gomorrah are always used as the worst and gross examples of sinners in cities known for sinning. And yet Jesus actually says here that at the future judgment, you would be better off to be ignorant, sexually immoral Sodom than it will be for those who willfully, knowingly, and pridefully reject Christ in the face of his revealed truth. Let that sink in. Please let that sink in. I think that is so fitting for us. A culture and a place that has more access to the truth of God and the truth of God's gospel and the truth of Jesus Than any before. No gross sins like Sodom to mention in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, and yet their unbelief, coupled with their level of knowledge about Jesus, is considered by Jesus himself to be a far worse evil than the sins of those ancient notorious cities mentioned. So, just really, really quick, we see their unbelief, but what's at the root of their unbelief? Two things that uh, Jesus mentions here indifference and pride just really really quick want to talk about the root of unbelief because the text brings us there indifference and pride that's at the root of unbelief so in verses 16 to 19 go ahead and look at that look at what jesus says about the nature of their unbelief but what shall i compare this generation he's talking about these cities and their unbelief what shall i compare this generation it is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to their playmates We played the flute for you and you did not dance. When you see flute, think happy music, right? Think like dance party, right? Like pumping the fist. Think like techno, right? You guys with me here today? Think dance music, happy, upbeat, (laughs) right? And you're not dancing. You don't want to dance. Then he says this. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. When you see dirge, think like indie rocker guy with an acoustic guitar. Girlfriend just broke up with him. Think that. Okay, real sad, like real depressed, like just kind of like whining, right? Think that. You don't want to dance, and you don't want to mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. He's saying, you guys aren't in the mood for a funeral or a wedding, you don't want to be happy or sad you don't want to celebrate or mourn they didn't like john the baptist john the baptist kind of had that like fire and brimstone preaching style right like old style like baptist preacher right calling people to repentance wearing weird clothes eating weird food right saying like real harsh words to people that didn't want to repent kind of had a serious, somber nature to his ministry. They didn't want anything to do with that. Jesus comes on the scene. He's healing people, cleansing lepers, preaching good news, raising people to dead, raising people from the dead, making phenomenal wine out of water at weddings, right? I mean, it's just kind of celebration. Kingdom of God has come. And they didn't want anything to do with Jesus either. You don't want anything to do with John. You don't want to mourn. You don't want anything to do with me. You don't want to celebrate. You guys are difficult to please. They're just hard to please. They witness the mighty works of Jesus and they're not moved one bit. No interest, no concern. Why? Because they're indifferent. Because they could care less. They're not doubting because they don't care enough to doubt. When you're indifferent, you don't care enough to worry about life's big questions. When you're indifferent, you don't ask questions like John did from jail. Are you the one or shall we look for another? Because you don't care enough to ask those questions. Their lack of faith is rooted in their lack of concern, indifferent, whatever. And I will tell you that this is a very, very popular spirit of our age. Very indifferent, very cynical, especially of religion, religious authorities. Very indifferent, can care less, whatever. And if this is you, and if you're here, like your girlfriend drug you here, right, or your mom, And you're just here like, whatever. You're not even hearing me because you got like your earbuds in your ears right now with your hood on and you're playing music. You can just care less. If you're indifferent and that's you, I pray that the reality of Jesus' mention of a future judgment will awaken you to Jesus' gracious invitation to come to him. Because part of the grace of Jesus' invitation to come to him is the joy of putting on a godly yoke A yoke of submission to Jesus and bearing the godly burden that he talks about in verses 29 and 30 of God's mission. Instead of walking through life indifferent and not caring about anything. Sometimes it's hard to keep that up, the indifference, the not caring. And sometimes it can be a burden, a crushing burden. To always keep up the appearance that you don't care, that you don't want anything to do with it. And subtly down there too, along with indifference, is pride which is the next thing that Jesus brings up. He seems to have a special condemnation for his hometown, Capernaum. Look at there in, uh, um, look look at what he says here. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be glorified? Will you be lifted up? Will you be lifted up so everyone can praise you? You will be brought down to Hades. And the language he uses here It's very, very close to the language that God uses of the prideful king of Babylon. And we see just the gross drip of pride here in Capernaum. That's at the root. That's that's at at the base of their unbelief. God said this of prideful Babylon. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to Sheol. This is just straight up pride. The root of their unbelief is just straight up pride. Come to Jesus. I don't need Jesus. I don't need anyone. I don't need you. I don't need a savior. I don't need a crutch. I don't need religion. I don't need your Bible. Come to Jesus. No thanks. Don't need it. And Jesus' invitation to come to him is for everyone, even the prideful. But it is rejected by the prideful. It's rejected by them because they don't see their need for God. They don't see their need really for anyone. The people who accept Christ, those who accept the gospel are the needy. Those who see themselves as beggars. Those who see themselves in need of God's grace. Because the prerequisite to believing in God's grace is believing that you need God's grace. There's a need there. There's a desperation there, needy of Christ, needy of his invitation, needy of this rest that he talks about, needy of salvation. And Jesus further addresses this pride-needy contrast in verses 25 and 26. Look at what he says. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, that's the prideful, and revealed them to little children, those are the needy. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The so-called wise, the so-called understanding, the so-called prideful, they always have a stone in their hand. They always have a reason. They always have a doubt. They always have a rejection. They always have a, a reason why. They don't want anything to do with God. He's referring to their pride. And to characterized these cities that rejected him. Jesus is saying, you're proud and you're self-sufficient to the point that you don't think you need any help and you don't think you need me. Woe to you. Woe to you who are prideful and indifferent. And what we see here from 25 and 26, God is sovereignly hiding the truth from those with proud hearts. God opposes the proud. And we see he gives grace to the humble. He's sovereignly hiding the truth from those with proud hearts and he's graciously and sovereignly revealing the truth about himself to those who are like children, those who admit their need, those who see that they're needy, those who who like little children trust. They're not bogged down with cynicism and indifference and hard hearts. They see their need for dependence upon others, especially God. They're not prideful, and they're not indifferent in their hearts. They're, They're begging. They're needing the grace of God. Indifference and pride are at the root of unbelief. But we see the grace of Jesus to still offer to come. The clue here in 28 to 30 is that this little section here, this invitation was given in those cities. There possibly could have been people from those cities, those who were prideful and indifferent and unbelieving, around hearing Jesus' invitation. And even though Jesus is at the tipping point and he sends down a woe, he still invites them to come to him. The prideful, come. The indifferent, come. He doesn't call judgment down right then and there on them. Now's not the time for judgment, John. Now's the time to come. Now's the time for grace. Now's the time to come and receive rest and salvation. So Jesus says to the prideful, indifferent, and unbelieving, come to me, all who labor and are heavily burdened in their pride. Pride's a heavy burden. It's a heavy burden. Always having to just resist and push people away. Always having to just suppress the truth about God. Pride is a heavy, heavy burden. Hardening your heart to resist any kind of help from a God who you were made for and who loved you in his son is a heavy load to carry. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden. You're burdened and heavy laden in your pride your burden and heavy laden in your suppression of the truth come to jesus come to him because you need him come to me all who are weary and heavy laden ought to be seen in light of those carrying around the heavy burden and the weight of intentionally rejecting what they know to be true about god especially like these three cities come to me come to me jesus says because the invitation to come to me is not always going to be on the table there's not always going to be an invitation to come There's coming a time when it's going to be judgment time, when it's time to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Hear me, please. There are some in this room who are intentionally suppressing and rejecting the truth about God, and they know it to be the truth. You are doing exactly what Paul says in Romans 1. You are suppressing the truth. You know the power of the gospel. You've seen the power of the gospel change people's lives As sure as those miracles in those cities, and yet you still reject. You're indifferent, you're prideful, and you reject. Do not harden your heart. Don't do it. Don't harden your heart. If you have never come to Christ as completely needy, a complete beggar with nothing in your hand, zero excuses, zero self-justification, completely needy, do it today. Because his invitation is there to come to him. And these cities are for us a tragic example of the consequences of not coming to Christ by faith and repentance. And may the sobering words of Jesus' judgment wake your cold, hard heart up to the fact that he's graciously inviting you to come to him and to find rest. Last group, this gracious invitation needs to be seen in light of another phenomenon in Jesus' day. And it is this. The religiously oppressive leadership of the Pharisees and those who are under their leadership. This next group is the religious oppressors and the religiously oppressed. This is most often how you'll hear this verse in this context. For those who are suffering under the, le- the spiritual leadership of those who were over God's people at this time. This is our last group. The religious oppressors, these guys, they're the ones whose yoke isn't easy. They're the ones whose burden isn't light. And the religiously oppressed are the folks who are weary and heavy laden, laboring hard to carry the burden of works-based salvation. They're laboring hard to try to get God to love them. They're laboring hard in their religion and in their rituals to get God to accept them and love them and to stay in God's good graces. And the teaching of these religious oppressors, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, it would have have fostered this kind of works-based approach. This kind of performance treadmill approach to God's love. And Jesus' invitation here is often seen in context and in light of this spiritual leadership exhibited here by the Pharisees. And so it's fitting that we have this invitation to come. And right after it, in Matthew 12, verses 1 and 2, records a little interaction Jesus has with these guys. And I think it's so fitting here. I'm just going to read it to give you guys just a little taste of what these guys were about and how they led At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And this is what they did. They walked around, and they made sure that you were obeying the law. And not just the law, but their interpretations of the law, their expressions of the law, their extra laws added on to God's laws, which they elevated to the level of God's law and held you accountable to that, just like God's law. And we see that the disciples are not breaking the Sabbath. Jesus goes on to explain that. They're breaking their articulation of what it means to obey the Sabbath. These are these guys. Look, you're sinning. Look, you're doing wrong, right? These are the guys you did not invite over to your New Year's Eve party, Okay? They have their religious underwear on way too tight. And when they're not wearing their religious underwear too tight, they're neatly folded in their drawer, dresser drawer, with the label out. And they have like their initials inside with magic marker. <laughs> That's, these are these guys. I just offended like five people in here. I'm sorry. <laughs> look, look, you're sinning. They're like the grown-up adult religious version of when my kids come and tattle on each other. Look, your disciples are sinning. Mom, Dad, right? These guys are more concerned about other people's sins and faults and not so much their own. And they were the cause of much spiritual oppression in the first century. And Jesus had many encounters with these guys. Just to give you an example, here's one other thing that Jesus said to these guys. If it's so fitting for Jesus' invitation Matthew 23 4. These guys tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They place heavy burdens on people, heavy religion and ritualistic burdens. They place the emphasis of salvation and God's love and God's grace on their work, men's work, man's work, something you need to accomplish. And how sweet, friends. Would it have been for the people who were under this oppression, under this leadership, to hear these words, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest from thinking you need to earn my love and to earn my grace and to earn salvation. These guys were abrasive, always quick to point out sin and judge people they were prideful, self-righteous, and exclusive. How sweet would it have been to hear that Jesus is gentle, And lowly in heart. All these people have been taught is do, don't do, and do some more. How sweet would it have been to hear, take my yoke upon you. Come and submit and follow me and learn from me. And in submitting and following to me, ironically enough, you're gonna find rest for your souls. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, ought to be seen in light of those who are struggling under the weight of a religious burden that you will never, ever, ever be able to carry yourself. Even later, after Paul began preaching the gospel, there was a council in Acts 15. And some of these guys were saying, no, 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 grace plus law, grace plus obey in order for salvation to happen, in order for God to love you. And one of the disciples, one of the apostles said, listen, what you're doing, you're trying to place back upon our neck a yoke which neither our fathers nor our forefathers were able to bear for we are we are convinced that a man is saved by grace they said it's grace and whenever you start adding law and mixing works in there with god's love as a means of salvation you're tampering with the gospel the gospel is not i'll love you if you obey the gospel is this i love you period and what that produces is a desire to obey and submit and come under jesus's yoke the message of christianity is not due it's done finished on the cross now come to me and find rest for your burdened soul there are some of us in here who are just struggling under the weight of thinking that your moral performance and your religious performance is what is changing and shifting god's opinion and love for you you're struggling under that heavy burden And Jesus says, come to me all who think they need to perform morally and spiritually in order for God to love them. Come to me all who are living their lives under the false assumption that God's favor and acceptance needs to be earned through religious deeds. Come and find rest. Stop. Look to Christ who went to the cross for your sin because there was nothing you can do for your own sin. Jesus had to come and do it for you. And so, in the midst of all this context, in the midst of all this activity, Jesus extends this gracious invitation to come to me, all who are weary, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To those who are burdened by law keeping, Christ fulfilled the law. And puts an end to all striving after God's love through religion and rituals. Come to me. To those burdened by trying to be perfect. Jesus was perfect on your behalf. God welcomes you on the merits of Christ. Not on the basis of your merits and your morals. Come to me. To those weighed down by the effects of sin in your life. Sin is a burden in your life. Because you are submitting to a yoke of sin in your life. Sin is a burden. And Jesus bore it for you on the cross so that you can experience freedom from sin's penalty and sin's power in your life. And you can come and submit to a gentler and more tender master in Jesus. And not the world and not your flesh and not sin. Come to me. To those burdened by suppressing the truth, rejecting what they know to be the truth. Jesus says, come to me and learn from me. Begin your journey of discovering the truth in Christ. Submit to Christ and not the hard-hearted skepticism of our age. Come and find rest for your soul. Come to me. To those wrestling with doubts, seeking answers, Jesus is tender and receives genuine seekers to himself. He is compassionate. He is the truth. And he says to all who are wrestling with some inconsistencies and truly desiring to know the truth, come to me to those whose pride and suppression of the truth is crushing you. It is a burden too heavy to bear. Humble yourself like a child and come to the one who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he died for all your pride, and he died for all your self-sufficiency, and he died for all your suppression of the truth, and he died for all your ignorance. Come to me. To those whose indifference has kept them from coming to Christ. Jesus warns you of the wrath of God. He warns you of the judgment to come to arouse your cold, hard heart to his gracious invitation to come to me. And to everybody else in this room struggling with a trial, a burden, a hurt, a habit, a hang up, and whatever 2014 is going to bring into our lives, Jesus says, come to me. For the first time, if you haven't become a Christian, come to me. Come and know Jesus like this. Christian, come to him again and again and again and again. For he is gentle, he's tender, he's lowly in heart, and he loves you and accepts you freely by his grace. Come to me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being a God like this. Thank you for being a Savior like this. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for coming. Thank you for taking on flesh. Thank you for living a perfect life, fulfilling the law, fulfilling all the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross as the God-man, as our mediator. A death for us because you are man, a death valuable because you are God. Thank you for dying and bearing the burden we could never bear our sin on the cross and making a way, making it possible that we might be reconciled back to God. Thank you for rising again, and thank you for this gracious invitation and this season of grace on the front end of a coming judgment where you are calling us to come to you. I pray that we would take you up on that over and over again. In your gracious name, amen.